are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. So a little participation here. You respond with lots of energy. You ready? What is the biggest day for Christians to celebrate? Easter. Very good. Sometimes people say to me, it's Christmas, and I feel compelled to remind them that if it wasn't for Easter, nobody would celebrate Christmas. In fact, if it wasn't for Easter, you probably wouldn't know much about Jesus at all. There were others who claimed to be the Messiah, and when they died, the movement died with them. There wouldn't be hospitals named Baptist, or Mercy, or Good Samaritan, or St. Jude's. There wouldn't be universities like Harvard and Yale, because all of those organizations were started by Christians. And so if it wasn't for Resurrection Sunday... Christianity wouldn't even exist. It would have died when Jesus died. And it wouldn't be anymore. And so, I'm going to say something, and I want you to come back at me really strong. Just repeat the words after me, okay? Easter is our hope. Just like it was for those early disciples. Well, I didn't mean for you to repeat that, but you're awfully nice to do so. <laughs> but don't stop participating. Don't let that deter you. I like the feedback. It is for us. So I was traveling a few months ago, two months ago maybe, to Africa. And I spent a week there with some missionaries from our church, Doug and Margaret Eaton. And so after spending the week with them, um, I was going to head home. It's about a 32-hour experience to get from there back to here. And so my first leg of the journey was to fly from this small country in southern Africa called Iswatini to Johannesburg, South Africa. And so I made that flight, and then after I got to Johannesburg, I'm going through all the process of, you know, getting ready to, to get to the next flight. But I'm supposed to not go through security. I'm supposed to go out into the airport and meet a guy whose name is Danny Gomez, who is going to drive across the city of Johannesburg to meet me and discuss our mission efforts in South Africa. Somehow I made a mistake. It was different than it was a couple of years ago when I did the same thing and I got myself through security and when I realized it, I was devastated. Oh no. So I go to this person and I say, here's my dilemma. I just need to go out of security so I can meet my friend for dinner and then I'll come back in. And while I'm telling him, he's shaking his head no. And he says, that is not a possibility, my friend. He said, you have in essence already left Africa. And so I went to another person who looked like they had a little more authority than him. And I explained my dilemma. And this person says, I'm sorry, but that's not a possibility. I go to a third person. And I say, I'm really in a bind. I've made a huge mistake. I've got a guy driving across the city to meet me for dinner. And I feel really bad. Is there any way I can get out of security and he says, I'm sorry, that's not going to be a possibility. And so, I feel bad that he's going to make the drive. And so frantically, I begin to text. I had Wi-Fi in the airport, Barbie Moore, on our staff who oversees all of our missions efforts. She had set up the dinner with Danny Gomez. And I said to her, well, here's what I said, okay. Uh, Barbie, I'm in Jayburg, meeting Johannesburg. I'm being told that I cannot leave security. When I was typing this quickly, it made perfect sense to me. Done something wrong. 
can you call Danny Gomez and let him know? Well, what I'm not thinking about is how she's receiving this. Her first text back to me says, are they telling you what you've done wrong? Do you have any idea? Please know, friend, that I'm earnestly praying for you now. I'm thinking, well, I always appreciate earnest prayer, but I've just missed dinner. That, that's it. I'll be okay, you know. So I'm in the airport, and, and I get this text message that she has sent to our whole staff, okay? And here's what the staff received. Please, please, please pray fervently for Pastor Rick. He is being held at the airport. She sees me in some dark back room, you know, where I've offended the security people and they're not going to let me out, you know. Please pray that this can get resolved and he can make his international flight and not be stranded for days in Africa. When I read it, I went back and read my text to Barbie and I felt so bad. So I had to send a text to the staff. There's a misunderstanding. I'm okay. I just missed dinner. I'll be fine. So we have a guy on our staff whose name is Gerald Nance. He's an IT guy here. And obviously, apparently, has way too much time on his hands. And he sent me this immediately. <laughs> Barbie, you're my only hope. Get me out of here. <laughs> well, fortunately, Barbie wasn't my only hope that day. I was okay. But the truth is that Jesus is my only hope. You may come into the room this morning saying, Rick, I know the story. In fact, I'm going to make an assumption that most everybody here can give me a pretty good summary of the story of the life of Jesus. He was born. We celebrated on Christmas. He lived. He preached. He did all of that stuff. And then he died on a cross. We, we remember it on Good Friday. And then on the third day, I know the story, I know how it ends, Rick. On the third day, he is raised from the dead. We call that Resurrection Sunday, Easter. So you know what? But do you know why? You know what happened? In fact, you could probably tell some guy on the street the story. But do you understand why it means something to you? And the difference it makes in your life every day. And it's found in this idea that our hope is not buried in a tomb, but our hope is alive. Let me explain to you what I mean, okay? Right here is a good definition of hope. It's to cherish a desire with anticipation. Many of you immediately are saying, I know what that is like. I do that. I have desires, you know, in my heart that I just cherish. I'm just hoping, you know, and I just nurture this in my heart. I'm just hoping that some things will work out, you know. It, it's to want something. And, and all of us in the room go, I, I got that one figured out. There's a lot of things that I want. To want something to happen or to be true. So here we go. Nobody gets off the hook. All eyes up here. Nobody is... This is not for the person behind you or in front of you. This is about you right now, okay? Here's the question. Look me in the eye and answer this question in your mind. What are you hoping for today? What is it? Because everybody in the room is hoping for something. 
What is it that you're hoping for? What is it that you say, Rick, if you want to know what I want to happen, this is what I want to happen. And I happen to know a few people in the room and they would just answer it this way. They're my friends and I pray for them and I love them. And they're saying, Rick, if you want to know what I'm hoping for, I'll just tell you now, I want to get well. I want this crazy disease that's in my body to go away. I just want to be well again. And there's other people in the room saying, I want them to get well. There's somebody that I love and I want to see them get well. You want to know what I'm hoping for? There. That's what I'm hoping for. I'll put it out there. I think there's probably some folks like me saying, I'm hoping for some relationships to get restored. That's what I'm hoping for. I don't mind being transparent. That's one of the things that I'm hoping and praying for today, that some relationships in my life can be restored. There might be somebody that's going to say, hey, you know, if, if we're just all getting honest, I mean, you're asking for it, right? Okay, I'll just give it to you. I'm in a financial crunch, man. I mean, if you want to know what I'm hoping for, I need some pressure to be lifted. I need money to get better in my life. If you want to know, I mean, I'll say it. That's what it is. I need money to get better. I'm feeling pressure. And i got to wonder if there's somebody in the room saying... It's addiction, Rick. It's distracting in my life. It keeps me from going forward. I'm stuck in my own personal addiction. And if you want to know what I'm hoping for, that's what I'm hoping for. I want to get free from this addiction. And somebody else may be saying, it's sin, Rick, for me. It has a grip on my life. And I'm on a bad path. I'm not going to a good place right now. I can see where this ends up. I don't want to go there. But I'm on a path and it needs to change. And some of you are saying, I'm hoping somebody I love will get on a better path. Because I care about them so much. What are you hoping for? Here's some good news. You ready for this? Okay, here we go. Because of the resurrection, and this is what we're talking about today, there is hope for your life regardless of your circumstances. I sat in my office and people come in and they draw really difficult pictures for me to see. Here's my life. This is what it looks like, Rick. It's tough. But I'm telling you, even for that person, because of the resurrection, there is hope regardless of the circumstances that you are facing in your life today. Everybody in the room. I don't care what your story is. As long as Jesus is alive, you have hope. So I want to take you to this awesome story. John chapter 20. You want to grab a Bible? Open it with me. John chapter 20, verse 1. And I'll share this great story with you. Here we go. Early on the first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. While it was still dark. How many of you get out of the house while it's still dark most mornings? That's not very many. I play golf with these guys and they love to get the first tee time and so I get up while it's dark. On Thursday mornings I drive to the course while it's dark. I go out to the first tee while it's still dark. And as the sun barely begins to creep up they say, okay, hit, I think we can see your ball now, you know. Do you know what it sounds like when it's dark? Do you know what it feels like in the early morning right before the light comes? Do you know that 
They probably walked, Mary did, to the tomb with a light of some kind, fire, in order to see. On the very first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples. The one Jesus loved, John's talking about himself there. It's not uncommon when you're writing in John's day to put yourself in the third person and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. You can't imagine this. This has got to be tough. You've just witnessed his death. He was beaten first with a whip. Then he hung six hours on a cross till he died. Then they laid his body in a tomb. And now you think somebody has stolen the body. This is horrible. We don't know where they put him, she says. So Peter and the other disciple, again talking about himself, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter. He's kind of bragging, I think, saying I outran the older guy. And I reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked inside, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, which is in full character for Simon. He lived life fast and he lived it loud. And he didn't take a lot of time to ponder making good decisions. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. What kind of a cruel trip would this be? That you would steal the body, the corpse of Jesus, but that you would take the time to unwrap the body first? What are they thinking? And why would you lay the linen where his body would be and the napkin where his head would be? As if... The body had disappeared and the air had deflated like a collapsed balloon or a bed sheet that you throw over your bed when the air goes out. What are they doing? Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went inside. I love these words. He saw and he believed. Can you imagine? John looks at this and he just thinks to himself, Oh, my goodness, he is alive. Wow. They still didn't really understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So we got another scene. They're gone. Mary's there. She's crying as she wept. She bent over to look in the tomb and saw, lo and behold, two angels in white Seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away... Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Don't touch and hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. Tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. 
I have seen the Lord, she says. And she told them what he had said, all of these things to her. Wow. You understand that hope is not buried in a tomb, but hope is alive. Um, Mary Magdalene becomes the star of John's story. Her name is Mary. She's from Magdala. And so it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day that you would talk about somebody's origin in their name. So Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene. So if we did that today in our culture, you would probably call me Ricky Kentucky. And after a while you would say, yeah, that all makes sense. That adds up, doesn't it? So Mary Magdalene, her life had been changed by Jesus. He cast seven demons out of her. My life was changed by Jesus. I was 19 years old. And in an instant, and, and I really mean in an instant, it was like in that moment, I would never be the same again. And so Mary just kind of gave her life to Jesus. And she traveled in the company. When Jesus would go and preach or whatever, she was right there with them. Because she knew that in Jesus there's hope. Nat and I have some friends. Their names are Jeffrey and Julie. They live down in Houston, Texas. They've been our friends since college days for over 35 years now, which makes me sound really old to some of you I know. But Jeffrey and Julie moved to Houston years ago, and they made some friends named Boyd and Myra. And so we went to Houston to see Jeffrey and Julie all the time, and so we met Boyd and Myra, and they became our friends. And so... It was time for vacation, which we often went with Jeffrey and Julie, and we invited Boyd and Myra to go. And so the six of us went, and we had an awesome time. And now when Annette and I travel back to Houston, we often say, are we going to get to see Boyd and Myra while we're here? So Saturday night, Annette and I are winding down. It's getting late. Jeffrey and Julie call. So if you're young, this is what old people do. We put our phones on speaker and all four of us talk together, okay? And we said, hey, what's up? And they were quiet. And Jeffrey says, I'm sorry, Buzz. And I have no idea why he calls me Buzz. I think it was a bad haircut at some point in my life, maybe. I got bad news. And Julie said, yeah, we've got bad news. I said, what? They said, Boyd and Myra's daughter and her husband and the two boys were headed home this afternoon because there were tornadoes and they were trying to beat the storms home. But they didn't beat them. And a tree falls over on the car. You heard about it maybe on national news. And the little boys in the back seat, three and eight, neither of them survived. Mom and Dad weren't really hurt. Here's what else happens when you're old and you have a grandkid. That's where your mind immediately goes. I could not even bear thinking about losing my little Sadie. My heart was broken. We talked for a while. I didn't know what to do with Boyd. I felt like there's people all around them. They're getting bombarded, I'm sure. And so I thought I'll send a text, which I did. Boyd, Annette and I, our hearts are broken. We're praying for you guys. We love you so much. 
And he writes back in a text. There are no words. There just aren't any words. What do you say in a moment like this? There's nothing to say. But your prayers are needed and appreciated. We love you all so much. You understand that this was not supposed to happen to this family. Nobody ever dreamed that this could be a remote possibility, right? I mean, it was never supposed to turn out this way. And as I thought about Boyd and Myra this week and all of their extended family, I begin to think about Jesus and the disciples and Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother and everybody who was close to Him. And, and they begin to have feelings after the crucifixion like Boyd and Myra are having right now in their family. Where do you find hope in a situation like this? I feel like it's really important for me in this moment to give you words of Jesus' followers, okay? Jesus' followers said this in Luke 24. Jesus' followers said, we had hoped. It's past tense. It's in the indicative mood in the Greek language. Here's what it means. We're not hoping anymore. We had hoped and hoped and hoped that He was the one who would redeem Israel. We had hoped that He was our salvation. We had hoped that He was God's anointed. But we're not hoping anymore. That's all over with. They nailed our hope to the cross. They buried our hope in a tomb. When Jesus died, hope died. You understand that Jesus' whole movement was based on who He claimed to be. Hey, come on, man, tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus said, I've told you, but you won't believe me. Are not my miracles enough? And the fact that He died is all the evidence anybody needs to say He is not who He said He was. Do you know what the disciples believed would happen to Jesus when he died? They believed what you and I believe when people around us die. They assumed he would stay dead. You know what I've never thought to myself, never once when somebody around me has died? I've never thought to myself, you know in about three days they might show up at the house. Wanting some of my no-baked chocolate oatmeal cookies. Never thought that once. Every time in my life somebody has died, I have assumed they would probably most likely just stay dead. And that's what the disciples believed. Go back to your houses, folks. There ain't nothing happening here today. It's all over. The whole Jesus thing is done. Do you know what about you and me? We have all had seasons in our lives when we could not see any hope. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. I've said to my wife, Annette, Annette, I, I want to be a person of faith. I want to believe, but I can't see how this is ever going to come together. We've all had seasons in our lives 
when we could not see any hope. All right, now, we need to move from Good Friday to Easter, so here we go. You ready? I read a story recently that I loved about a guy whose name was Alex. Alex said, I grew up in a large Puerto Rican family. I was number five of seven children. My dad was a charismatic man. He had piercing blue eyes. He was talented as a musician. He was a drummer. He was winsome. He had the kind of personality that people just gravitated to him. He said, I remember when I was a little boy thinking that I had the most awesome dad in the world until my dad developed a severe drinking problem. It got to the point, he said, that my dad would be carried home drunk by his friends night after night after night after night because he was just completely passed out drunk. And I remember that over the years, my dad became a very angry and a very mean person. My dad would hold a bottle of beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. He says, in fact, as I move through life, I can't remember too many times seeing my dad without a bottle of beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I remember he would look at me with a bottle of beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and he would say, Boy, if I ever catch you drinking or smoking, I'm going to beat you half to death. And he said, Beating people became a way of life for my dad. I remember my brothers and my sisters and I huddled up together in a corner crying, watching him beat on my mother. And as we got older, he started beating on us. He didn't know what to do with me. Now you would have diagnosed me with ADD. In those days, he said, they just beat on you. My dad would take that belt out of his pants and he would come at me. And sometimes he would push up his sleeves and he would hammer me with his fist. And I got numb to the pain. I became calloused as a kid. I became cold. I became really hard. And the thought that occupied my mind most was, one of these days, I'm going to take my dad out of this world. As a kid, you shouldn't think like that. But I couldn't help thinking like that. I blamed him for the death of my sister. When I was nine, she took pills and took her life. He and her had an awful relationship too. She wasn't his kid. She was my mom's kid by a previous relationship. And I remember after the funeral, my dad came home and he got a bottle of beer and a cigarette and he turned on his beloved salsa music and he turned it up full blast. It was like he was at a party. When I was 11, my mom got up the guts to leave my dad. And we were all so glad that she did. But there was nobody to sit on me. And my life got bad. Drugs, alcohol. He tells as he writes his story that I was shot several times. I was beaten with bats a few times. I was in 12 car accidents. I don't know how I survived. When I was 27, I felt old. And I said to myself, you can't live long living like I'm living. But I never really felt like I've been loved by anybody but my mother. And I wanted to have a family. And I wanted kids. I know, he said, but I wanted to be a dad. And I was determined I wouldn't be a dad like my dad. I met a girl, we got married. But my life really didn't settle down. Our house was party central. I would invite friends over and we were doing drugs like crazy. My wife got pregnant. I couldn't believe it. 
I dreamed of being married and I dreamed of being a dad. I was married and now I was going to have a kid, but my wife miscarried. She got pregnant again. She miscarried a second time. She got pregnant a third time. And I remember sitting in the emergency room at the hospital. I didn't know what else to do. I was desperate. I decided that the reason she couldn't have a kid was because I would be a bad dad. And God knew it. And so there I sat in the emergency room. And I didn't care who knew it. I could have cared less. I would have hit them if they would have gotten in my face. I prayed out loud. And I said, God, I don't know how to talk to you. I don't even know who I'm talking to. But i got to have some help here, man. you got to let my kid live. If you'll let my kid live, I promise you, I'll be a good dad. And then he said, I surprised myself with my next line. I will do whatever you want me to. He said it was not like five minutes until the nurse comes out. Calls my name, Mr. Collin. Your wife's going to be fine. The baby's fine. You can take her home in just a few minutes. He said, I couldn't believe it. We walked out the doors of the hospital. I had my hands in my coat pocket. I had my hand on a bag of cocaine. And I saw a trash can. And I dumped it into the trash can. And I said to my wife, I'm never going to do drugs or alcohol again. And she laughed because I'd said it many times. But after two weeks, I had not done drugs or alcohol. The longest I had gone in 17 years. But my wife miscarried the baby. And I was ticked. I was mad at God. And I told him, we had a deal, man, and I kept mine to the deal, and you're not keeping yours. But in spite of that, I did not want to go back to that life I had been living. And I didn't want to use drugs or alcohol again. And so I didn't. My family, we were Catholics. We only went to church on Easter. That was it. That was it. We only went on Easter. One time a year, boom, that was it. No more. But I had an aunt who was the real deal. She really did love God. She prayed for me all the time. She told me that. She was awesome. My family was dysfunctional. We were a mess, but not her. She always loved me. And I began to believe that God was answering her prayers. Because I felt like God was changing me. I heard about a friend named Angel who was just like me. He was my friend. But somebody said, and this is the language they use, Angel got on fire for God. And he was going to this church where they had this prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. And I could go also and see Angel if I wanted to. And so I said, sure, I'll go. Because God was doing something in me. And sure enough, Angel was different. But what happened to me at that prayer meeting, I was not expecting. This preacher gets up, and there were over a thousand people there. He said, I'm sure. But it was like he was only talking to me. And here's what he says. Some of you were raised with a father who did not love you, who did not take care of you, who did not protect you, who did not watch over you, who wasn't there for you. But you have a heavenly Father who will never leave you. He will always care for you. And He will never, ever, ever walk out on you. And he said, when that preacher said that, man, I became an emotional wreck. I was just done for. I went home and I told my wife, and I expected her to be happy with me, but she wasn't. She was not good with the Jesus thing at all. She said, Alex, you're changing, and I want the old Alex back. I don't like this new Jesus Alex. You're going to have to make up your mind, Alex. It's going to be me or Jesus. And he says, I will not choose between the two of you. I want both of you. I'm not making that choice. 
And she said, then I'm leaving. And she took the furniture and everything they had and she left. Life was good, but it was bad. Life was great, but it was hard. I'm alone. And then I get sick, really, really sick. Sick to the point they think I'm going to die. That's when my family showed up. In spite of all of our dysfunction, there was nothing but love. And in two months, I was well again. And I went and found my dad. And I told him I loved him and I forgave him for beating me and for not being a good dad. And I told him, Dad, you need Jesus, man, in your life. What a contrast. When I was a kid, I wanted to kill him. Now I'm trying to get him to heaven, you know. And he says, a year and a half later, the night before my father dies, he gathers my brothers and my sisters and my mother in the same room and he tells them that he's sorry. That he wasn't a good husband and a good father and he wants to be forgiven. And then he said in front of my whole family, my dad, this hard man that I never ever saw cry in his entire life, began to cry. And he began to say, God, would you please forgive me? You want to talk about resurrection? Alex says, God brought a godly woman into my life that I met at church. We got married, and guess what happens a year later? He gives me a little girl. And I became a dad. Let me show you his words as he concludes his story. God has done so much for me. He restored my life. He blessed me with a family. He has given me, say the last three words with me, so much. I stood right here on Friday night, and you know what a mom says to me? She says, Pastor, I have a son who's 43. Drugs have ruled his life. But five months ago, he checked himself into a Christian rehab center, and he called me and he said, i got to get help, and I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus, Mama. 43 years old, okay? And she said, I want to tell you, Pastor Rick, that my son has been clean for five months now. I'm talking about a new life. I'm talking about being raised to a new life. I talked to a lady named Bobby Dockham this week, and I said, Bobby, I remember seeing you in the hospital, and I remember what you told me about the doctor's diagnosis of your situation. Worst kind of violent cancer you can imagine. You might only be with us a few more weeks, and two years later... She is cancer-free. She says, I feel like I have been raised from the dead. (laughs) These stories are every day. It ought to be your story. So what do you do? So I got a favorite New Testament scholar. His name is N.T. Wright. Out of character for him to write like this, I think I've never seen it. As he writes about this passage, here's what he says you should do. You should imagine that you're standing beside Mary at that tomb while she is weeping. You want to do that with me right now? Can you get your mind there? Imagine that you, you, not your neighbor, but you, you're standing beside Mary at the tomb and she's weeping. And N.T. Wright says, no better still, bring somebody with you. Bring somebody that's hurting. Bring somebody that needs healing. 
somebody that needs hope, somebody that needs forgiveness, and stand there beside them with Mary. Oh, when I read those words, you know what I imagined myself? I imagined me standing there holding the hands of some people that I pray for in the mornings who are fighting this battle with cancer. And I just imagine that I'm standing there with them. And we're all just standing there beside Mary together. And he said, now don't rush it. Let tears flow if they need to flow. Because they have a rhythm of their own. But when it's time, stoop down and look inside that tomb. But be prepared for a surprise. Because inside that tomb there are angels. Angels, where did the angels come from? They weren't there a moment ago when Peter and John went in the tomb, right? And then T.S. Wright says, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. And then he says, sometimes we can only see angels when our eyes are filled with tears. Meaning that sometimes we only begin to believe in miracles when we are truly broken. Imagine the angels asking you, why are you crying? And then Mary sees who she believes is the gardener, but it's not, it's Jesus. Woman, Jesus says. Why are you crying? And N.T. Wright says, go ahead and answer. Out loud, say it. Here's what he says you can do. Tell Jesus what you've lost. Just say it out loud. Tell Jesus why you're hurting. Tell Jesus what's gone wrong in your life. And then listen to the person beside you say it. And then listen to Mary say it. And then listen for Jesus to say your name. Like he said Mary's name. Can you hear Jesus say your name? Oh. I just want to hear Jesus say, Ricky? And he says the name of every person who needs healing and who needs hope. Here's what I want you to understand. That you really can be raised to a new life. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you're dealing with, Jesus is alive and there is hope for you. And so whatever your answer was when I said, what are you hoping for? Maybe you were saying, I want to get well. Maybe you were saying, I want a relationship healed. Maybe you were saying, it's money, man. Money is a mess in my life right now. Maybe you were saying it's an addiction. Maybe you were saying it's sin. Maybe you were praying all of those things for other people. But I'm going to invite you to do something this morning before you walk out the door. I'm going to invite you to say it to Jesus. So guys are going to come and the band's going to come and we're going to sing together. And as they lead us in this song, I'm going to invite you to step out from where you're standing these altars have been part of our DNA for over a hundred years. It's just, it's just a place to pray. That's what it is. It's a place to say it to Jesus out loud. Jesus, this is what I'm hoping for. Jesus, this is what I've lost. Jesus, this is why I'm crying today.
And I invite you to come and to say it to Jesus. You know what would be awesome? If you just say to a friend, hey, you want to go with me? Or if as a family, you just take each other's hands and you walk down together. Or as a couple. Or as a group. And you just come and you get on your knees. And you just say, Jesus, this is what I'm hoping for. This is why I'm crying. This is what I've lost. And Jesus can do for you what He did for Mary and what He did for the disciples and what He's done for thousands. Let's stand together. And I'm challenging you. Come and find a place to say it out loud. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.